Welcome again to the Classic English Literature Podcast. This is Matthew McDonough, and this is our first bonus episode. I know, you're thinking, well, we hardly have had any regular episodes. How do we get a bonus episode already? Because I'm a giver, that's why. Um, no, seriously, what I wanted to talk about was something I mentioned in my introduction episode, and I thought I could expand upon it a little bit, but then I realized... You know, in the, the scope of what I want to do with, like, the history of the English language and the history of English literature, that there wasn't really a place to squeeze this material in. So I thought, let's do a bonus episode, you know. I'm already rethinking the parameters of the podcast. Ah, changes growth. So I got a question for you. You ready? Do you dream? Do you? Do you dream? Now, I don't mean dream like, yeah, I want a 85-inch HD TV on my yacht. Uh, not that kind of dream. Uh, I mean your, your nocturnal hallucinations. Do you dream at night? Do you remember them? Do you remember your dreams? Sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I wish I didn't. But the question I'm asking is, is really, it's, it's this one, I guess. It's, it's, since we do dream as human beings, where does the material for our dreams come from? You know, where do we get that material? There are a lot of theories from psychologists. Uh, you know, it's unresolved problems that we face during the day, unresolved issues, sometimes uh, unfulfilled wishes, that kind of stuff. But the hypothesis I'm kind of interested in here is this idea and I'll say it slowly because it, it's, a, it's a weird idea. And if just hearing it, it, here it is. Dreams are abstractions of patterns of being. Okay. Dreams are abstractions of patterns of being. What the heck does that mean, McDonough? Well, okay, let's just take the words. So abstractions are their processed, you know, mentally processed symbols or images or sensations based on experience. Um, they're not real concrete things. There are sensory and mental impressions of those concrete things, things we can touch and taste and feel and experiences that we have. Uh, these are symbolic representations of those things, okay? That's what an abstraction is. It's a processed symbol, image, sensation based on experience, but it's not the real experience or the concrete thing itself. Okay, so dreams are abstractions. They're symbolic and signifying. Great, we got that. Now this phrase, patterns of being, um, the patterns of being is the, is the real stuff. It's the, the real concrete ways that we behave in the world. Right? It's the values we hold, the goals we have, the beliefs we profess. Um, patterns of being are the structures of our personal, social, and cultural lives. Right? Values, beliefs, aspirations, goals, behaviors. Those are the real things. How we behave and operate in the world. And abstractions are symbolic representations of those real things. 
So dreams are ways of processing abstractly patterns of being. They're symbolic ways of living out different variations of our experiences. Yeah, yeah. Dreams are symbolic ways of living out different variations of our experiences. That sounds good. Okay. Dreams may be a way of dealing with memory, right? Like I said, one of some of the most popular theories about it is that we, you know, uh, we're, we're resolving these conflicts or wishes or something that's in our real world or dealing with our memories. So dreams may be a way of processing what's called episodic memory. That's episodic memory, uh, which is the recall of personal facts or particular experiences. Uh, episodic memory is the stuff you know and the stuff that's happened to you. So dreams may be a way of processing episodic memory into what's called autobiographical memory. Now, autobiographical memory is the combination of these episodic memories in such a way as to develop the sense of a self, of being who you are. So dreams take memories of episodes in your life, experiences that have happened to you, particular personal facts, little things, like an episode of a TV show. It's just one thing. And then it tr dreams might transform all of those individual episodes into a cohesive autobiographical memory that gives us a sense of who we are because of all these things that happen to us. You may have heard the, the, the saying that, you know, humans are the sum of their experiences. That's kind of what we're talking about here, is that dreams are a way of transforming episodic memory into autobiographical memory, which kind of creates uh, a sense of our unique selfhood, you know, my madness, you know. All right. Thanks. That's, uh, that's great. But what has this got to do with literature? Well, think of it like this. Think of literature, you know, English literature, American literature, Chinese literature, you know. Think of literature, stories, as the dreams of an entire culture. Literature is the dream of an entire culture. I like that idea. It's, it's a collective... It's a collective effort to compile episodic experiences into one sense of a cultural unity, one sense of a cultural self, who we are as Americans or as Britons or as you know, French or Africans or Southeast Asians, you know, gives us a sense of culture, uh, a sense of who we are. So we study literature because those stories are abstractions from cultural patterns of being that you will live out in real life. Like you will live out the cultural patterns of being in a culture's stories. Literature, poems are ways of organizing individual experiences into collective experiences. And that confers a sense of meaning to our lives. We know what it means to be an American because of the stories we tell about Americanness. You know, they can be the stories of our great leaders, 
George Washington and how he couldn't lie about the cherry tree or Abraham Lincoln about how he couldn't let that widow get shortchanged a few pence and so he walked miles to return it to her. So these stories are how we study such meaning. So if you want, you can think of literature, literary study, as like a lab of life. You know, uh, you know how you, when you were in school, you had a biology lab or a chem lab or a physics lab, and you could actually take little samples of whatever was being studied, you know, dissecting the frog or testing mass or, or whatever. You could take a piece of the real world and isolate it, kind of figure out how it works, and then see how it integrated back into that real world. And I think literature can do that in a, an abstract, dreamlike, if you will, sort of way. Think about it. When you read a, a novel or watch a play or, or watch a movie or a TV show, any kind of story, you have access to fictional characters. You have access to their, their inner thoughts, their aspirations, their desires, and their fears in a way that is impossible in real life. Now, if you think about it, we know more about the inner life of Shakespeare's Hamlet than you do about your best friend. No matter how close you are to your best friend, there are still areas of her mind that, and her experience that you don't have access to. But in a play like Hamlet, or in a novel like To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf, you are inside someone's head. You have access to their experiences. You are, in some ways, omniscient about that person. And the sense you make of that access is analogous to the sense you can make of your own life. Does that make sense? Literature is a way of taking individual experiences, rendering them into stories that become collective experiences. And in those collective experiences, you can inhabit the mind and behaviors of someone other than you. And then you can take what you've learned from that and you can create an analogy to your own life and how you could behave, how you could dream, how you can value. You are, if you think about it, in some ways, the protagonist of your own life story. You're the main character in your own life story, and everyone else in the world is, 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 a, is a side character, you know? Have you ever pulled up to a stoplight, and you look in the car next to you, and for that weird fleeting moment, you realize that the person in the car next to you has exactly as rich and as complex and as joyful and as anxiety-filled a life as you've got. I think, I think it's called Sonder, S-O-N-D-E-R. I think that's what they call it, that experience where you realize that you are not the only full consciousness in the world. You, you look next to you at the stoplight and, and that guy with his Dunkin' Donuts in his hand, is, is, he's got exactly as 
deep a history and as wide a scope of experience and as intimate uh, personal relationships as you've got. And you're just a side character in his story. You know? Yeah, that's why my kids tell me, I think, that's why my kids tell me at school that, you know, it's weird when they see me in the grocery store or something because I'm just a character in their lives and I'm the character who lives in my classroom. And when they see me out buying bananas, that just kind of, it wrenches their perspective. They realize for a moment that teachers aren't just, you know, chained to the chalkboard, that they actually have lives. And the kids always say, it's like, it's like watching, you know, it's like watching a dog walk on its hind legs. They just, that's weird, seeing a teacher buying bananas. Anyway, I just wanted to offer that because I said in, in my introductory episode that uh, that language is uh, a way by which we create the reality we live in. And this is kind of what I meant by that. Uh, language creates the reality we live in because it names experiences, it names objects, and the stories that we tell the meanings we confer on those experiences and objects, they become patterns in the world that we live in. They're the way of navigating all the chaos. They give an order to what we live in. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next time. Oh,